The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. another fine episode of the show. Today our film topic of discussion will be Sergio Leone's 1966 western staple, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And I'll be doing so with my guest from Outlaw Nation, the top 10 and Schmodown. It's my dear friend, John Roca. Hello. What's up, Brandon? How are you? Oh, I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm I'm <laughs> just going to sit back, relax. And, uh, <laughs> Doing great, doing great. Yeah. Have you on here early on in this show's lifetime, and yeah. happy to have you. I mean, we've met each other. What we've known each other fifteen years now. Wow, that's like oh five. Yeah, crazy to think about, man. Oh five. Wow. Yeah. So 05, dude. so much has happened since two thousand five in <laughs> we my live life. In a whole new world. That is crazy. Yeah, that's for sure. On so many levels. On so many levels. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's great to be on here, and I'm glad you asked me to be on. I'm excited, and I remember when you announced this thing, I was like, you better have me on this thing, and <laughs> I'm excited to be talking about something I know very, very well, which is Westerns. And oh, so yeah. get, getting into the good, the bad, and the ugly will be a lot of fun with you for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited about that. Back when I met you, you were you were the actor. You were coming to be, and now yeah. you are Roca, the personality. Yeah. <laughs> we met you. Been, we, I remember we were all excited about you. had got a part on Charmed when, early yeah. on when I first yeah. met you. We all, like, everybody, like, that night made sure they, they didn't watch the Prime, but we were <laughs> checked in uncharmed that i don't know if anybody we knew watched charmed at the time but we yeah i did watch payback's a witch or <laughs> yeah payback's a witch yeah yeah that was the first thing i ever booked as a on-camera actor mm-hmm. and got paid for uh, here right. in uh california it was great it's fun uh, i'd still get residuals for that still get the occasional mm-hmm. 26 dollar check 28 dollar check and uh, or 20 i'm sorry 28 cents 20 26 cents, cents. Yeah, it's not $10. And then occasionally the episode will be up and someone will text or tweet me or something and saying, holy crap, is that you, Roga? And yeah. so, you know, it's it's fun to remember it back then. But yeah, I was trying to be the actor, pretty pretty frustrated with it all, pretty frustrated with my life back then, not happy doing it and then yeah. working the job to try to stay afloat. And the job was fine for paying the bills, but it wasn't the greatest job. Right. So it was, you know, it was certainly a, not the greatest time in my life looking back, but I met cool people like you and yeah. other people there who I became friends with our hustling uh, days. and still are friends with <laughs> our hustling days. Right. And we work with Forbes, his own Scott Mendelson. So Scott Mendelson, the Maranzio what a crazy Vance. world. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Maranzio Vance, that's right. Yeah, we were talking about, uh, I was talking with, I went on, Dave Cronmiller had me on his show oh, cool. to promote this show the first week, and we were reminiscing about that, and we were like, man, the talent pool we kind of had, the one with, <laughs> we had the, it said we were like, it was a dream job, but it wore you out and frustrated oh, you like crazy. Oh, yeah. Like, ideal was like, oh, we sit and watch cool movies all day, except for watching Wallace and Gromit like 20 times in one day, yeah. but. Yeah. Or Norbit. You know, Nor- yeah, Norbit. <laughs> oh, the Norbit days. Yeah. You did a lot of like Spanish language voiceovers work yeah. for 
for movies yeah. too back in the day. That was yeah. Up until like earlier this year, I was repped by William Morris for both English mm-hmm. and Spanish. They shut down the voiceover division except for celebrities. So those mm-hmm. of us who aren't name names got pretty much let go and put out there to go look for other voiceover agents. But yeah, for. 15 years, I was there uh, doing stuff voiceover-wise in Spanish or English, getting the occasional commercial with occasional PSA or mm-hmm. occasional animated series, you know, doing some Transformers stuff, doing some other things. It was a blast. It was a lot of fun doing that. I'm still doing it. I still record. Yeah. If you want to hear any of the stuff I do now for anybody who's listening, you can go over to Crypt TV and any of their promotions for movies that are coming out, I'm doing the voice. You know, and I'm like, everything you wanted to know about this, that's me. And so it's been a fun little side gig to have with the great people over there at Crypt TV. So still still stretching out the voiceover muscles in other ways other than doing shows on my channel. So, yeah. Right? <laughs> and, um, you you did also a, a voiceover for my favorite film of that year. It came out with Leah Wanell's Upgrade. I think you did. Oh. there was like a Grindhouse trailer, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Grindhouse trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun, too. I was yeah. psyched about that. But yeah, <laughs> so when when do you pinpoint exactly where you like transitioned from like actor to just media personality and you kind of were like, that's now where I want to be at. or Yeah, uh, I would say it's probably 2015, I think it was. Mm-hmm. I was coming out of a pretty terrible breakup with a girl I'd been seeing for five years. It was a pretty horrific relationship. And I don't mean horror and, you know, like Invisible Man or anything like that, but it was more like, right. it was just like a bad, we were just a bad matchup. And it really kind of broke me in half and ripped away a lot of my, whatever was left of my self-esteem and self-worth. And so I was pretty down on myself and I wasn't booking much and I wasn't succeeding as an actor. And to be honest with you, Brian, I really wasn't even happy when I was on set whenever I had booked anything because- just sitting around waiting to say lines into a camera. I just didn't feel any control. And I just didn't, I hated that I couldn't be doing something I really wanted to do at a level I wanted to do it. And so when I was in some pretty deep depression of having the relationship fall apart and for the second time, and just in a space knowing that it was really done, I was like, well, what am I going to do with my life now? Because I'm not happy with the acting or whatever. And I'm, I'm uh, in a relationship and my friend, uh, Christian Harloff, who of course is the head of the Schmodown, he calls me up and he's like, Hey man, do you want to come and be a guest on this star Wars show? And that's basically how it started. And I started being a guest, really enjoyed being a guest. And then he walked away from the show and said, do you want to take my spot as the co-host with the great Tiffany Smith? And I was like, yeah. And Tiffany showed me the bones. Tiffany slid me some money under the table as a friend every week that she was getting paid. And in exchange, I was learning, I was building rundowns, I was doing all this stuff. And I found that I got so much more uh, satisfaction out of the six months of doing that than I had had in the previous 15 years of doing acting here in Los Angeles. And the truth is to survive, not here in Los Angeles, I'm in San Diego now, but in Los Angeles, to survive as an actor in Los Angeles, you got to want it so, so bad. And if you don't, unless you're one of the pretty people, it's going to be really hard to survive and succeed doing that business. And I just realized that I was getting more satisfaction out of being a, a host and a pundit and a future critic and what have you than I was trying to get into these movies that I was talking about or criticizing. And Brandon, you know, when we worked at 
those places, we sat around and talked about movies all the yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. You know? we, we all should have realized at the time and got ahead of the game that that's what we so really right. liked. Oh my God. I mean, we used to talk, I think the coworkers, like they used to call you George or whatever. They'd be like, you're like the walking IMDb. I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. but I want to, I want to be in and write movies. And (laughs) like you, you said you have to want it. Like me, my problem was I like to know my money was there a little bit for, there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of job quitting to go audition, not even get your part to audition. And that was something that I realized like I I can't do. And when I had that script for a while that you were going to be involved with. Oh, yeah. And we had I had that deal where it was like this, they were going to give us two million to produce it. Right. And I spent a whole year just location and then it just fell through. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't do that every time. I can't right. do that. I can't. The it's swings. Not me. There are people. There are people. <laughs> and that was like my only like real chance to have something I created go. Yeah. And it. Yeah, that that was that was too much. But I mean, you were more willing to make sacrifices that I couldn't, and I always respect <laughs> yeah. that. Like, yeah, I mean, I you know I, I was uh, let go from that job, and and I really kind of self sabotaged myself because I was really unhappy. Yeah, and I didn't know what to do with my life, but I knew it wasn't testing DVDs or running a crew of people testing DVDs, and and you know my father had died, so I was in a really messed up place yeah. emotionally and mentally. Like, just I was so lost. You know, like I said, a self-sabotage got myself let go from that place. But while I was on unemployment, a friend of mine, Andre Gordon, I think you've met Andre, him a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, come watch games with us. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So Andre slid in and Andre was like, hey, I want to start this wrestling show. And so that was my first taste. Before the Christian Harlow thing, it was the wrestling oh, show. The money, I, the money in the Bank. Yeah. Yeah. The watch Money you. in the Bank I didn't even watch show. wrestling, but I watched you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was fun. We, we had great chemistry and a lot of fun. Of course, Andre's in Miami now. But like at the time, that was, I think that was like kind of pulled me out of some doldrums and he was a manager as well. So he took me on to represent me as an actor. You know, I had a little bit of money saved up. So I bought new headshots. I bought, I got a a voice reel done to kind of apply for other things as well. And so I ended up getting some things and booking some things and, and went on a little bit of run. And I was able to make a living for like, I don't know, five years or four years off just the acting stuff and the occasional unemployment periods. And it was nice to be a full-time actor. Right. Constantly auditioning, constantly hustling, constantly. And if you can't get farther ahead when you have it wide open for you to do that, then I think that says volumes about your actual desire. And, you know, but you have to go through that. And so I had to go through that to climb out the other side. So, yeah. But now, I mean, it's been hella rewarding for you. I mean, your personality, mm. like I, 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 a guy I met, Willie Beeman or whatever, I met him at a wedding one time and yeah. was talking about things. He started following what I was doing and he noticed that, like, I had you as a guest on my mm. old show one time. He's like, you know, you, you had Roka? Roka? I was like, <laughs> I was like, all right, John, Johnny is definitely well, like, I knew you were well known, but I was like, wow, that hit close. I was like, yeah, I know, I know John Roka. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, it was but a thing, yeah. Schmodown, you kind of just like came through, and that was like the ultimate. Yeah. I feel like the ultimate turn for you because your knowledge, because we know you had the mm-hmm. knowledge yeah. all through the thing, and you used to one of the, like a little fact. You used to sit in like the was it the Golden Globes? You sit in the van, yeah. and help the the red I carpet. Still People do be that. like uh, that do is that. that is Sir Ian McKellen. He is in the X Men movies, <laughs> and he's going to be in this. And like you would help him with that, yeah. Pre iPhones. Just off your knowledge. You didn't have a book with you. You just knew the people and you knew everything. And I think that might be a, is that a little secret people don't typically know or? Yeah, well, I mean, I have no problem talking about it. I mean, you have no problem talking about it, but I mean, like, I've talked about it before, like, because I think that we should be the, that was a really cool thing you did. Yeah, Talent Spotter. I still do it for the SAG Awards and occasionally okay. do it for the Golden Globes. And it's it's an easy paycheck. It's like 500 bucks, sit there for an hour and a half and just like I drive in, show up. They tell me who I'm supposed to find. 
in the crowd when they show up. Nine times out of 10, I know every person on the list. And then if I don't, I do a little bit of research. And then when the red carpet opens, I'm in the truck. And then I'm like, that's this person, that camera six, that's this person. This is the time code, blah, blah, blah. And it's fun. And I do it every year at the SAG Awards. And it's a you know, quick, like I said, it's a quick little hour and a half. I get paid a nice little chunk of change and roll on with the rest of my day. So yeah, I, and it's helped me in the showdown because I just have a natural proclivity to connect a face with a name. And it's always been something that I've had a gift to do. And the theatrics. <laughs> Yeah, the outlaw, yes. Yeah, I mean, Christian was the one who pitched that to me. You know, Christian said, hey, I want to take this to the next level. Can you create this character? And I was, well, it has to be a heel. Is okay. And we talk about Western stuff. And it's like, we both claim we came up with the outlaw. So it's a nice little argument between the both of us. And then from there, he was like, I need you to do, like, you get the wrestling thing, the pro wrestling thing. You know what to do. And he said, if this pops off and you stop winning, trust me, you're going to get a lot of followers. And he was a thousand percent right. Mm-hmm. All these people who've come over on my social media, the foundation of them were from the opening days of the Schmodown when so many people were watching, when we had like 300,000 views per episode or per yeah. match, those people started following me on Twitter and on Instagram. And then when I got the full-time job at Collider, they started following me even more because then I had legitimacy being at an outlet. So it was a, a fun, fun experience, but it's been a fun ride. And I totally always give credit to Christian Harloff for believing in me and opening the doors for me. I did what I needed to do to be successful once I walked through the doors, but mm-hmm. Christian was always great at opening the doors for me. And I'll always thank him for that. Yeah. Thank you. And you've now gone on your own with the Outlaw Nation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a huge enterprise. Yeah. I was let go earlier this year from Collider because they're making cuts. I sat around not knowing what to do. And my girlfriend was the one near the end of January who said to me, like, you need to shit or get off the pot and move the fuck on already. And it was a hard fight. Like we almost broke up that night. The fight was so hard. She said to me, like, enough is enough. You can't do anything to change it. You could look at this as an opportunity to build something of your own. Why don't you build your shot so that you can get everything for your own channel? And so Perfect. that's when I started to kind of really kind of dial in. I reached out to some friends and they were willing to help me for free, which I was blown away by because I tried to offer money and they all turned it down. They were all like saying like, hey, you have provided me years of entertainment, but it's the least I can do. And so it just kind of worked out in a very good way. And now we've got a strong base of people and we're building. We're still building. And I'm still learning how to create a successful channel. And it's been a fun journey for sure. And it's the great thing I like about it. And what kind of Outlaw Nation's kind of expired what I'm doing here a bit is that mm. it's just you. It's your stuff and it falls under yeah. your banner. And so if you want to talk about something random that you've never done about it one day, it's the Outlaw's thing. So it's fine. Like yeah. It, yeah. You talk about politics on there. You talk yeah. about Star Wars. You talk. I mean, you have all sports. guest interviews. Yeah. yeah, sports interviews. It's everything that's John Roca. Yeah, and yeah. what is awesome, and it's the perfect idea. Like, yeah, not limit yourself. It's got to reflect who I am, right, Brandon? I, I, and maybe other people would say, "Oh, it's, that's why he's not. He doesn't have like fifty thousand subscribers because he didn't focus on one area." But if I focused on one area, the other areas would suffer in comparison, and I would feel I wouldn't feel comfortable. And so, yeah. the fact that the channel reflects who I am as a person, and that there's something there for everybody. I think for me, it puts me at ease. And eventually, right. if we get to a level where we have a lot of subscribers, then we start creating shows for other people to come on and they have a base and a foundation of subscribers and their show can have a little bit of a, a you know, like a launch and right. uh, it could be great because eventually 
I want to run it, but I don't want to be the person hosting all the shows. Right. <laughs> Eventually, I want to be the person who's like sitting back and it's making money for. So that's the goal in the end. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I mean, if there's a little curiosity in your brain, it can be explored. You don't have to yeah. create a new show for it. You don't have to go. Exactly. It's great. And I, yeah, I'm loving what you're putting out and I can't keep Thanks, up man. with it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a lot. But Thank no, you, it's, it's good stuff. It's great stuff. Yeah. The good, the bad, the ugly. Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and Lee Van Cleef. Three men, three guns, and the gold. The good, the bad, and the ugly. In color from United Artists, a Transamerica company. Suggested for mature audiences. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's directed by Sergio Leone. Scored by Ennio Morricone, starring Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach. It's about a bounty hunting scam joins two men in an uneasy alliance against a third in a race to find a fortune in gold buried in a remote cemetery. And Johnny, you yeah. picked this one. This is great. I, I love it when my guests just directly know what they want. and Because um, <laughs> I've, I've gone through, and I've, I, I'm not throwing any of them under the bus. I get mental. Movie people are like, well, I could do this and this and this. Mm-hmm. But when they come directly... And you, this and another one, you're like, you pick one of these, and yeah. I'm going good, bad, and the ugly, and because I like both ones, you, I won't. Maybe we'll talk the other one another time. Yeah, good, bad, and the ugly. There's obviousness to it, but yeah, why'd you pick it for the show? People forget when you look at genres. Every genre has had its run of being made fun of or being seen as lesser than. And Westerns was one of these genres that came out right out of the gate and immediately captured America's attention. From mm-hmm. the great train robbery to those things where the horses are riding through, people are freaking out in the theaters. And so we've already seen the, the shot into the camera, all of that. We've seen that from the old days. And then, of course, into John Ford stuff, into, into Stagecoach in the 20s, into, and then into the 30s stuff, and then 40s and 50s. And so for the longest time, it was the top genre in films in America, it didn't always win awards, didn't always win Oscars or get nominated or whatever, but it was populist entertainment with the occasional artistic Western that would rise above and get nominated for like Cimarron or Stagecoach or other Westerns Unforgiven up into 92. And it's very America. You know, I'm the son of immigrants, right. but I always gravitated to like the West, the idea of the West, the idea of making your own way, you know, and in a way the outlaw nation reflects that we're building our own ranch or home homestead or whatever, a homestead or whatever. And like, so for me, that's the thing that I always loved about Westerns. And when it came to good, the bad and the ugly, that was the first Western I saw as a kid where I understood the cinematic possibilities within the genre. It's such an epic with the music, with the directing, with the acting, the story, the story that's, there are some serious stakes in the story, but also some great humor throughout. And then some very like emotionally devastating and unsettling and uncomfortable moments like when Lee Van Cleef is beating up that guy in the Civil War camp mm-hmm. and the guy is playing the music to drown out the screams oh, of yeah. torture and he's crying and just like, yeah, this is a Western, but this is a hardcore Western and the, that the is not is shying away. beautiful too. Yeah, the song is that. beautiful too, yeah. And you're like, I, you know, this informs your Tarantinos later on, of course, mm. but just, yeah, at that moment, 
for sure. The haunting nature of it all. But also the also there are emotional moments within the characters' lives. Eli Wallach, his back and forth with his brother is so interesting because, oh, yeah. I mean, remember, this is the 60s, right? This is when this film comes out in the 60s. What's going on in the country is you're seeing this rebellion from the younger generation into the against the older generation. This idea mm-hmm. of don't trust anyone over 30, Vietnam, all of this, and the idea that the son who ran off to try to find his fortune in his life and left the other son at home to take care of his parents, both have a righteousness in their decisions, right? Like yeah. Eli Wallach, his brothers, who's a priest is calling him out and saying, you were disgraced at the family, blah, blah, blah. And he calls him out and says, yeah, well, you didn't have the guts to do what I did. You stayed at home. So you think you're somehow noble because you stayed at home, but you're not, you're a coward because you couldn't do what I did. And it's like, right. whoa, I'd never seen that in a Western before. An actual emotional interaction that is about family and relationship. Mm-hmm. Something I can understand as a guy who was constantly trying to figure out how to find my path and my journey and leave my house, it kind of connected with me even at a young age, what was going on, you know? Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde gets a lot of credit Mm. for bringing on New Hollywood, but Leone secretly is doing this and informing the guys that'll be New Hollywood. I mean, Westerns weren't like his until A Fistful of Dollars. They weren't ugly. They weren't, I mean, the way his use of shots, like, Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of, granted, it's period piece, so it's not so obviously informing right. as Bonnie and Clyde, but I think there's a lot of Leone in there. I mean, Lucas will borrow from him, and like, yeah. Spielberg, yeah. They'll, all, they'll all take from him, but yeah. there's something to that one. And this is like, of the do, you know the Dollars trilogy, this is like the grand opus of them. Yeah. And then you'll find majority likes this or Once Upon a Time in the West mm-hmm. as Leone's masterpiece or yeah. whatever. I'm I'm a big for a few dollars more guy, but <laughs> I, I, I think picking these is stupid. Like they're all great. Like tomorrow I might go, you know what? It was good, bad, and the ugly. They're all fascinating to go through. And I've actually gone through these during our quarantine lockdown period. Oh, I went through, I picked up the Leone set from Kino Lorber. So it had all of oh, them nice. except for his first one and Once Upon a Time in America. Right. So I've, I'd recently gone through these and I watched it again be- before this because why not watch Ugly? Because <laughs> it's great. Yeah. But there's so much in here, like technique wise, that just amazes me as well. And yeah. like you're saying, there's a lot of deep stuff that, like when you're like when I was a kid, I didn't pick up on a lot right. of it. But as I get older and I return to it, I I see more and then the deep stuff and that like the stuff with the the priest, mm-hmm. uh, the brother priest. And I also like to think like you know we think you know Tuco's a little shit, but Look how Eastwood treats him throughout the mm-hmm. film. He's a shithead to everybody, but you get it. You see him treated worse than almost you see him treating other yeah. people, or maybe that's where that's why he treats people like shit like right. that because he can't take it out on Eastwood. Well, I mean, look at it in a symbolic mm-hmm. way, and we can look at it now in 2020 in this way, but then maybe yeah. not in times past, and maybe other people did, and it wasn't loud enough or whatever. But mm-hmm. if you break down good to bad and the ugly, right? The bad is the bad. It is evil. It's Nazis. It's what it's just like 100 percent evil. There is no there is no like gray here. There is no like, oh, there's a reason for why he's doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. No, he's very much an evil person. The good is this idea of Clint Eastwood and what he's doing. But is he really good? Because he's involved in a scam. He's got basically to go by a string all the time changes the terms on things when he sees fit, when he deems fit. And Tuco is this guy trying to survive in a world caught between both of these guys. He's not all the way bad. He's not all the way good. He's just trying to live. Now, if you make Clint Eastwood's character America and you make Lee Van Cleef's character, whoever you want to make, Russia or whatever, 
What about all these other little countries that have to survive from the right. scraps of the table of these two world powers? And so we want to judge Tuco, but in fact, Tuco is just about every other nation trying to survive in this crazy world. And remember, again, this is the mm-hmm. 60s. This is Vietnam. Yeah. Even his comments about the Civil War is his comments about Vietnam because we were having our own civil war in the country between the young and the old about protesting Vietnam. So if Blondie is America, look what America's doing. America claims to be good, believes itself to be good, mm-hmm. but it's involved in these scams. It's involved in cheating people out of money. It's involved in you know lying and to trying to get that treasure that's at that grave at the end. So America is always conniving and blah, 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 but it's putting on that good looking all American, yeah. white, blue-eyed face. And so right. the, you, if you want to break it down, you can break it down. So Tuco is all these other countries that are yeah. judged by America, but they're actually just trying to survive in the world that they, the two superpowers, have constructed. So it's just fascinating oh, to look works. at. That works. That analogy works. And also to, to put... Uh, the good kills more people than the ugly and the bad combined. And also, Correct. when it comes to it, the good wears the clothes of the Confederate soldier. The bad wears the clothes of the Union soldier in this movie. Right, right. It's, really, it's a really weird <laughs> dynamic that they go for there. Granted, none of them have allegiance to either side, but the movie also right, decides right. to show us a Union concentration camp of sorts and nothing right. on the Confederate side other than hurt soldiers and demolished right. cities and people planning for after because they know they're gonna they're gonna lose yeah. and it's really interesting eastwood's blondie has a sympathy for you know fallen soldiers that we see mm-hmm. a couple times there yeah. that is shown that yeah, yeah that that is an interesting great analogy of the america and eastwood is the great american <laughs> actor to put. spare to the west yeah. Yeah. yeah and this course you know falls as a prequel to the other films mm-hmm. by design but like it's always been like did they totally intend for it or just happened because of his clothes but right. i it works going back to the, the beginning i love this movie has one of my favorite like introductions three introductions to characters but i love how they introduce them they all trivia fact they kill three people each before we go on to meeting the next one but like oh wow yeah tuco tuco he's gets three hitman on him and it kind of gives you all about him in one scene that you're going to see the rest of the movie angel eyes has like just a dynamite intro like just <laughs> it's creepy just sitting at the table and yeah. just showing between two different parties that paid him to kill i mean he kills a kid too so you just yeah. know this guy's don't fuck with him and then yeah. eastwood of course kills three people to free tuco right uh, right but well sergio loves that idea of killing kids mm-hmm. right i mean in uh, once upon a time in the west as well right. when uh, henry fonda it's a quick shortcut to make someone completely evil you know even game of thrones first episode is uh nicholas coster walder mm-hmm. pushing the kid out the window yeah. and immediately evil you know, and so it's an easy stakes, way out. Unpredictable. Yeah. They'll kill a kid. So what exactly. else? Will they do? What else can they do? Yeah, exactly. it always happens. Like, oh shoot, they killed a kid. I. That means I guess anyone's in danger because <laughs> a child died. So they do exactly. Basically, I mean, the story is through three people, but they switch around with allegiances, following, getting closer to this Confederate gold. We learned yeah. about it starts with a scam, and then the way these parts move and change is incredibly natural never forced mm-hmm. and just it works it flows it's fast this is like a almost a three-hour movie and yeah they spend a lot of time even the, the finale in the cemetery is a half hour <laughs> doesn't feel like it at all this is one of my favorite sets of all time that was because it was built that huge cemetery or the cameras are trickery yeah uh with it but it is dynamic it's huge it's full of graves full graves probably a lot of trickery with 
you know, distance and stuff, but it yeah. just looks amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. The thing is the film does its job because you're right. A half an hour end scene in a cemetery would be exhausting in just about any other film mm-hmm. because you're like, well, my God, we're still here, you know? And I, I liken it to 13 assassins. If people have seen 13 assassins, the final battle is 45 minutes long, 45 minutes long, a samurai mm-hmm. battle for 45 minutes. It's insane. But it's because everything that leads up to the 45 minutes is so well done that you are just relishing the fact that you're finally getting the battle. And the same mm-hmm. thing here, everything leading up to the cemetery scene is so well done that when you get there, you're just now on a on the uh, you know the edge of your seat on the uh, standing on the on the tip of a needle on the pin of a needle just kind of wondering what's going to happen you know and so mm-hmm. even if you've seen it multiple times it's still because it's such a well constructed film it still ratchets up the tension inside you so that when you're there and you're open to receiving what the uh, Leone was doing you are on the edge as well all over again watching that end sequence between the three and that that it was just so classic the eyes the close ups yeah. on the eyes looking at each other it's brilliant only it's certain so directors brilliant. can pull it off i mean and you get yeah. the, did he I, like you i mean, think you're a more wealth of knowledge of westerns of i am of course but like did he come up with more of the itchy trigger finger close up than others or cuz i know there was uh, the, the just yeah. with the hand like that but he really gets you to think the guy you're watching is going to pull yeah, it's it's tough to say with him because remember he wasn't the only one doing these kinds of movies at the time. Oh yeah, he just became the most famous. Famous, yeah. So I would hesitate to say that he was the one that came up with it or with the itchy trigger finger thing, mm-hmm. uh, because it could very well have been other Italian directors or other spaghetti Western directors right. who had kind of done that, and he took that and used it in movies that had more wider acclaim or wider mm-hmm. attention. And so he gets the credit versus someone who maybe has came up with it another in a smaller cowboy or Western film rather. And I don't want to get uh, into any trouble. People get so mad when you say the wrong thing on these things. Oh yeah. The podcast so, thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they know, don't they know? <laughs> That's bullshit. Don't they know? Like, hold it was, on, it was a union. Let me pull up Wikipedia and IMDb <laughs> and get some. Right, right. People get mad. So, yeah. I mean, I so that's what I would say. I said, I, I, for me, I hadn't seen it until I saw a Sergio Leone film, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it wasn't in existence beforehand. So, yeah, for sure. Right. Every time I watch it, I wonder if Lee Van Cleef, Angel Eyes, when he gets shot down, he falls in the casket. Yeah. And then as Eastwood is walking past him, he shoots his hat yeah. and it goes on to him. And I'm wondering... If I've never looked up or seen anything, if that's a nod to for a few dollars more, where he has the little shoot off with the hat, oh with yeah, him outside, and he gives it back to him rather than yeah. shoots it away from him, and I don't know, I was like, is that just happenstance or because it's a little extra thing on top of it? But I don't Could know, I kind of that. I when he know. shoots his hat away, to me, I think it's like emasculating him. Like you're not yeah. even you're not even part of the West anymore. Like you're right, you're evil, and you're not even a cowboy. Like it's just his way of kind of completely emasculating him in my opinion but right right yeah. that's true that could true. be connected though I, I don't know i mean each of these guys they before this i mean they have their own little journeys which mm. more lee van cleef is more on his own but he does get paired with the others at times yeah and he just he disappears reappears and it's creepy but he doesn't it's funny like i meant his kills are low mm-hmm. like i don't think he really kills anybody after the opening but you he just van cleef's good at this but you just feel yeah. that he does and in infiltrates areas and finds it and i love his respect for eastwood with his whole like well you wouldn't talk and he's like no no right like, yeah 
So <laughs> yeah, agreed. And but if there's only if there's one guy to stand up to like Eastwood in these kind of movies, it's always been Van Cleef for me. Grant, mm-hmm. there's a couple movies together, but he's always yeah. the guy that he, he's kind of like he's not as tall as him. He's not doesn't have the good looks, but their their demeanors really mash good. And I, I think mm-hmm. that those two share the screen quite well together. It's well, always fun to see the journey of Lee Van Cleef in the westerns. You know, mm-hmm. from like from High Noon to right, Liberty yeah, Balance. Yeah. This is a, a hired gun in High Noon. Yeah. yeah. Of all these, his journey, you know, there's always like Jack Elam. You love seeing the journey of these guys, Slim Pickens, all these guys that have been like staples in Westerns. Mm -hmm. You love seeing their journey from when they first started to where they do their last Western. And certainly with Lee Van Cleef, I don't think any genre fit him as well as the Westerns did. He looked great in a cowboy hat. His angular features for a villain were perfect. And as he got older, you saw that the characters he created were less emotional. You know, when you watch him when he's younger, there's more of that piss and vinegar, right? Like Coster and mm-hmm. like Silverado is almost unrecognizable to anything that comes after. Right. You know, if you compare No Way Out Costner to Silverado Costner, that is two completely different people. And True. that's that's the character that he honed for the rest of his career. And I think with Lee Van Cleef, once he got past the early stuff being all emotional and and, you know, exuberant, once he settled into who he was older as a man, that really came through with his parts as he came, became older and he brought so much weight to them. And like you said, didn't kill as much, didn't have to though, right? because the dread of him is almost as much as him killing a bunch of people. Yeah, after that setup for the first scene and the second, you're like, any mm. any scene now, he's going to kill somebody. If he's in with somebody, yeah. like, ah, he might not. Except for Eastwood, you're like, that guy's going to the end. But yeah, <laughs> and you know, Wallach's got a journey and his is fun. His has a lot of like, improv tomfoolery and yeah. just a uh, mix between comedy and evil yeah. things like the scene with him in the gun shop that is yeah some Oof. crazy shit with him i yeah and apparently they just let him go like that was not in the script and he just took the gun apart put it together and just yeah. harassed the shopkeep guy and <laughs> that's just that yeah for me that, that that's a good that's his scene for me with that one yeah and yeah. um i know people like the bathtub scene but yeah, yeah. I think Raimi paid an homage to that in uh, Quick of the Dead, Dead when you with Russell Crowe, like, mm-hmm. you know, how much can I get for this or what can I do? And he started putting it together. It's all falling apart. I thought that was a little bit of an homage. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but it felt like a little bit of an right. homage. Right. The great, the great trigger, the how much, and he's like $50. Yeah. And you're like, and then you realize, oh, he's talking about the cash register. Ah, okay. That's good. <laughs> That's good stuff. Exactly. And, you know, him trying, always trying to corner Eastwood and drag him yeah. to the desert. I mean, this stuff's just brilliant. Like, it's that stuff that's like, damn, I will never be this good at, like, writing anything. <laughs> and and these were considered just, like, you know, little exploitation westerns almost. Yeah, and yeah. we look at them as the art they should have been treated back then. And Right, right. Like, I, I watch these things and I'm like, damn, I miss this genre when I just see what Leone's putting on the screen, how he shoots it, and so much ah, yeah. good stuff. Well, I think through. that's I think that's why I feel such an affinity for, or why I carry the seriousness of the westerns mm-hmm. when I do the Outlaw and the Schmodown. And look, the Schmodown is just fun. It's people battling for trivia and championships right. and whatever. It's fun, but the idea that no one else like comes forward and speaks about how great the western genre is, mm-hmm. I feel a responsibility when I'm playing the Outlaw to make sure that that's something that. Uh, I represent and and convey uh, in a powerful way because I think Westerns are a great genre. And I think as Americans, we have to remember 
the lessons of the West and the lessons mm-hmm. of these Westerns, the real lessons of these Westerns about doing the right thing, about you know standing up to evil, about not being afraid to stand with someone when they're right against an impending evil. There's so mm-hmm. much throughout all these Western films that I think represent the ideals and the morals and the principles that this country was founded on. And so I love to see that come forward in films and even in Unforgiven, which of course, Will Money is one of the most right. flawed protagonists you'll ever meet. He turns on the evil to destroy another evil. And it's an evil yeah. that's willfully evil, where his evil was an altered evil because he only ever did that when he was drunk. Gene Hackman's evil is purposeful and willful and mm-hmm. it's almost dictatorial. And so what Eastwood is as the imperfect assassin or the imperfect soldier to take out this evil in that way, he also represents the idea of the underdog going against something big. And America always likes to see itself, even though it is a superpower and the number one right. superpower for it always likes to see ourselves as an underdog. And so mm-hmm. in these Westerns, nine times out of 10 in these Westerns, the protagonists are in an underdog situation and have to find their way out. Magnificent Seven, The Wild Bunch, Liberty Valance, because nobody thought Jimmy Stewart was going to be able to shoot Lee Marvin. Oh, yeah. And so all those things, you know, even John Wayne in uh, True Grit, all those people he has to go overcome to get the, that person back, to get Tom back. And, and so there's so much throughout the Western that is that. And so I take it very seriously when I play the outlaw and I love doing it. I'm very blessed yeah. to be able to create a character like that and talk about Westerns and get a chance to talk about them for sure. I always had a feeling for outlaw Josie Wells with Eastwood. Yeah. That one, that one's... And that one tells, I watching it nowadays, I'm like, oh, this is the guy who, you know, we forget that sometimes people have been wronged by the good guys at some point. Yeah, and yeah. And there's got to be a compassion. There's got to be an extension to bring them back to a mm-hmm. good side <laughs> with things. And just, yeah, there's a lot to learn from them. And it's great. Yeah, I, yeah. I wish people would go back. I think it's a genre that maybe people, you know, there's so many, once new things started coming, yeah. wore out. And we only get a couple a year. And I don't think, they do get appreciated, though. When they do come yeah. around now, they're... Yeah award possibilities stuff like that they're well yeah. done but yeah I, to get them on a regular would be fine to have again well it's time and yeah back. you're right i mean and and they expand the western now is more expansive than ever you know if mm-hmm. you're throwing in no country for old men as a western or the, uh, there will be blood as a western those all qualify because that's yeah more time. yeah modern it's mm-hmm. that area right modern westerns and to me yeah. you know slow west is a fantastic western oh yeah bone tomahawk i've never seen a horror western oh. before and that's incredible yes. Um, I always thought about writing a script with a like a slasher movie set in the old west. I always thought that'd be kind of like you get possible. away with that shit way easier. Oh yeah, back then. Yeah, and and then the town thinking it's someone killing the you could do the lodger in the old west basically. A great point. Yeah, yeah, and you could. I, that was a screenplay I always thought about writing back in the day, <laughs> but some people are like that sounds stupid. I'm like, oh well, fine. <laughs> I never yeah, wrote it. You know, but. And, and look, we see the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian yeah. brings, you know, it's got the way. I know I got a lot of shit for that tweet. Oh, you yeah. Just, uh, oh, I stood by you, I was like, like <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, all I saw with people, I will stand by. And I, I stood by you and I saw a lot of people yeah. like, this is the wrong, don't be this guy or something. I was like, no, 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 no. Because when I, the Mandalorian, I see a lot of samurai stuff in that. And nobody yeah, yeah. was crediting anything samurai. No one was. Like, yeah. Old West. And so, so I was I'm just like, frustrated. I was like, you know, when I saw The Last Jedi and I got, I was psyched after it, you know what I did for like the next two months was I just like binged through old samurai films I hadn't seen mm. in a long time. I, I was mm. on a samurai kick with that. I'm like, Star Wars is the West, but it's also a lot of samurai, which is also yeah. the West. Like they're, 
Yeah. Yeah. It influenced from Kurosawa. Lucas has been very clear. His samurai films, Kurosawa samurai films influenced Star Wars. So when I wrote that tweet, it just, I'm my mistake to not add that extra word. I just was frustrated that morning yeah. that all anyone was talking about was with the Western aspects. And look, I would never go against anything Western related, of course. Right. But I also felt that people were shortcutting it in a Westerner point of view and mm-hmm. not also throw, uh, remembering or recognizing or calling out or, or highlighting the Eastern elements within the Mandalorian as well. The low wolf and cub stuff is all there oh, yeah. combined with the Eastwood man with no name type stuff, certainly. Right. So it's equal to me, equal Western, equal samurai right. tale. And so, you yeah, because I think you know. guys like Ryan Johnson, Dave Filoni and yeah. John Favreau all re- recognize it. Kurosawa is very important to what Star Wars is. And yeah, they, those absolutely. guys put that back in there where other people, I, I think a lot of the part of the issues with not to go on Star Wars tangent, but yeah. why not? <laughs> they, they go, what, what makes Star Wars Star Wars? And someone goes, well, Star Wars makes Star Wars Star Wars. And I'm like, mm, I like the guys that go back to what Lucas had in his brain yeah. and pull from that. And that always, when those guys do that, it always feels natural into the Star Wars universe rather than right. trying to, just recreate Star Wars. And yeah. like Kazdan gets that too. Like I yeah. thought Solo, you know, I don't think Solo was the film to bring in new fans, but it felt that natural. There's a lot of Bogart, Bacall type stuff in there yeah. and just classical influences from Lucas. And, you know, Howard knows that too. But those are the type of guy when you want to expand Star Wars, you've got to go back to those wells to make it feel natural. I think. Yeah. And Western aspects to it as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Kasdan did Silverado. So why wouldn't yeah. there be the Western aspects in it? Yeah. Yeah. Those classical guys. And agree. yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Star Wars and Good, Bad, and the Ugly, which there was, there's actually, speaking of Good, Bad, and the Ugly, there was a rumor that there was going to be a, like a, a DC film that was going to be. Batman, it was like Affleck when he was doing a Batman, it was Batman, Deadshot, and Joker doing a good, bad, and the ugly in Gotham <laughs> City. And I was like, that would have been awesome. You could trade the Civil War with crime boss stuff. Oh, yeah. Trying to figure uh, out. Think it would like, totally work. I would have I loved to have seen that. I was like, that's a cool idea. Keep you know, meshing old stuff with that, yeah. but that apparently never happened. Well, that's my greatest so. fear, uh, Brandon, now as I'm getting a little bit older, is I sense that people aren't turning to the classics at the levels that they did in the past. Oh yeah. And I sense people are turning to like films from the seventies and eighties and somehow discounting the films from the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties. You're giving them credit. I don't think they go to the seventies enough. I, oh, that's I fair. They, that's fair. They, they, and, they hesitate when they get past 90. I think, I think eighties right. have some, a lot of popcorn stuff they can like, but exactly. And, and I'm not trying to be the old man on the porch swing, yelling at the young kids or on the porch. I'm, I'm trying to mm-hmm. say like to appreciate the influences in the movies that you love from the nineties and the eighties and the two thousands, which you think are so groundbreaking, quote unquote groundbreaking, mm-hmm. you better make sure if you're going to call yourself any student of film that you go back and watch the classics and study the classics. I mean, yeah. That's what we all did. Yeah. Yeah. And find out where all those things that you think are groundbreaking actually were first presented, actually were first seen and realized that it's not that groundbreaking. It's actually just an homage or a way of bringing it back uh, or using it as a launching point. And so to me, that's what I sense as I have more and more conversations with younger and younger film fans. And I see some of these pundits that are in their twenties coming out and they don't, they can't talk about the classics to save their lives or haven't seen right. any international cinema at all. 
I'm just like, you know, I get it. If you know, that's the 20 year olds are loving watching to other 20 year olds talk about movies, respect, knock yourself out. But if you want to get a fully fleshed out conversation about movies, you got to listen to people who are very well aware of classics and the seventies and eighties, nineties and all that stuff. Like it's got to be a combo of the history of film or you're not going to get a really good conversation in my opinion. And that never ends. You're always studying. You're always going back. You're always, there's always something there's such, and people I want movies back in the theater. Me too, but you realize how much is out there that you can learn, you can see that's already great. So true. Like people, so true. what are they complaining about? They're like, oh, they wanted like, I think it was back, they wanted just, screw it, give us new mutants now. I'm like, dude, between streaming services, ordering DVDs and Blu-rays from Amazon, I can tell you for a fact, or no, it was like, it was a better movie. It was like, I think Black Widow or something, they were mad. They oh, yeah. That. And I was like, I can guarantee there are probably at least 500 movies. I haven't seen Black Widow. Nobody has, but I can guarantee you there's probably 500 movies better than that at your fingertips right now. Agreed. Agreed. And you could go back. I'm going to watch Black Widow. I'm excited to watch Black Widow. Yeah, but, of course. But I can tell you there's a lot of great stuff that you're just ignoring because of a date or something. And yeah. There's a lot of things, too, John, that I think they don't realize you got to get in the mentality of when that film was made, too, when you sit down. Right. Perspective. Yes. And you got to, and that's why with my children, I've given them a variety of different eras so they can yeah. see effects. They, they're not going to be goofy because they didn't see anything old till now or whatever. And I just, right. you got to let them see the evolution of film and stuff yeah. and just constantly go back, watch Hitchcock. Like, how can a young person not get into Hitchcock? Right. Or Kubrick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I say, oh, I've God. talked to people. I've talked to people who have YouTube channels and they've never seen a Kubrick film yeah. uh, and they, and they joke about it like, Oh, you know, I'll get around to it. And it's, what are you doing? What, what could you, what could you possibly have to offer to the conversation? Right. If you haven't studied the classics, yeah. I'm sorry. Freak can be mad it, all yeah. you want. Freak can yeah, it best. He goes, he said that you don't need money for film school. You don't need to do film school. You just need to watch the filmography of Alfred Hitchcock. And yeah, you will not need to do film school. Not everybody can be Kubrick, I don't think, with the photo. Right, <laughs> right, right. But, but the but but Brandon, nowadays, I mean, every DVD, every Blu-ray, every special edition yeah. is a is a film school or at least a film class within oh, yeah. itself. Yeah. If you listen to the commentary, if you watch the special features, like every criterion, I have a st- I just have stacks stacks of criterion. Yeah. Every time there's a fifty percent sale, I'll go buy whatever I don't have, and it for you know foreign films or right. domestic films. And you watch, and it's a class to teach you how oh, to yeah. look at movies, how to understand movies, how to learn about movies. How they were know? seen. And, like, I love how they were seen in the era, the time of yeah. like that that yeah. comes across. And I just had uh, Justin Beam, he creates bonus material, not for Criterion, but for other ones. Mm. And I was talking, he did a commentary on Munster Go Home. The Munsters movie for the years, yeah. but he had he had Butch Patrick on it and he had Rob uh-huh. Zombie on it. And through the conversation, I, I really love this commentary. I, I highly you really get an idea of the sixties television landscape or fifties, sixties television landscape right. like no other. Like you don't I don't think people realize that reruns weren't a thing. You didn't have a wealth of syndicated television. There was prime time was like six o'clock on through the night. Right. And it just like Butch Patrick and Rob Zombie really paint a good picture of like television in that era. Yeah. And I think good releases are a school. Yes, they are. And they should leave you with no questions. Those can help you. They can teach. Mm-hmm. And kids, there's a Fellini box set coming <laughs> this month. You should check it out. Yeah. It's going to yeah. be hundreds of dollars. And if you don't like them, guess what? There's some dork like me that will probably 
is looking for a cheaper price and will buy it. Right. For, or sign up for the Criterion channel for 10 bucks a month. Oh, gosh. And you get access to all those films. To That's learn. what I like. Yeah. There seem to be like people are catching on to Filmstruck really good. <laughs> But not yeah. Criterion Channel. Filmstruck had like people like, oh my gosh, I've never seemed to be catching on. And then Criterion Channel does it. And I I just don't see the buzz as much as I did before with Filmstruck. Mm-hmm. But that is a great well, channel. Well, I think people I think people connect Criterion to like, oh, this is elevated. This is blah, blah, blah. And so yeah. they see it, yeah, as snobbish or out of and whereas Filmstruck was like, cool, Filmstruck, you know. But I, yeah. I think that's what it is more than anything yeah. else. But I've been yeah. like, yeah, I'm watching guys like I learned stuff like Bava and Argento looking through Italian horror films, just things that were seen as lesser, but man, they have influenced a shitload. And just mm. having them also, we live in an era where you have 4K, you have Blu-ray, you have yeah. hopefully good streams, and you can actually see them as beautifully and crisp as they were supposed to look rather than shoddy DVDs, VHS. Yes, yeah. you can You can learn a lot. What else? This is a segment where we talk about other media we've taken in recently. So, John, what else? <laughs> Good question. Well, I mean, sticking with the the Western genre, this is this actually happened the other day. I had never seen Will Penny before, the Charlton Heston Western. Mm. And I was just rummaging through channels, and it had just started. I had a couple of hours. I was working on a, on a show that I was going to do for the Outlaw Nation. And, and then, you know what? I put down the computer and I just sat and watched a movie, which I hadn't done in a little bit of, in a, in a little bit of time. So I just sat and watched Will Penny. And I was absolutely enthralled by it. Totally loved it. Charlton Heston claimed that it is his favorite film role that he's ever played. And he played Moses, for God's sakes. And he's saying this is his favorite film and Ben-Hur. But this character of Will Penny is the fa- one of the favorite characters he's ever played or the favorite characters ever played. And then I went on to YouTube and I found a great interview with John Grease because John Grease's oh. father directed Will Penny. So, and John Grease is the kid in Will Penny because he, uh, Will Penny protects this young mother and her child. He is the kid in, in Will Penny. So, you get to hear these Charlton Heston stories from John Grease in this interview. So mm. just fascinating. And it's one of these Westerns that just was in my blind spot that I hadn't seen yet. And I thoroughly, thoroughly loved it and had a great time watching that. And then we're doing a rewatch of Community right now. My girlfriend and I. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's never seen it. Oh, so we're okay. So I, I came out from whatever I was recording and she was two episodes into the first season or three episodes. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she goes, Oh, I, I just thought I'd finally start this because I, you know, I'd always kind of wanted to. And I was like, oh my God, I will absolutely sit down with you and rewatch this entire show because my girlfriend doesn't watch American shows. She only watches British shows and she's just obsessed with those. And so we're about to finish season two and we've been ripping through four or five a night up to six sometimes because it's quick. They're 20 minutes each. Yeah, I love the, the 20 minutes each. I, I watch a lot of, I'll go back and watch a lot of classic Doctor Who because they're like 20. <laughs> 22 oh, minutes nice. I get through there I just yeah. randomly grab one of my DVDs or something pop it in speaking of John Grease do you remember he was at one of our holiday parties one year when we were at IQC or Testronic we really had the UC, we had the UCLA Stound stage and everybody's oh. like oh, Uncle Rico's here That that's totally him and he was friends with somebody we worked with <laughs> <laughs> and he just he wanted to come to a holiday party he's with like free booze I'll come yeah. sure, he seemed like man. a genuinely awesome guy too yeah. so when, in the interviews so yeah <laughs> Is there anything anything more modern in terms of films that I've been watching? No, I went to see Tenet for the oh, first yeah. time, finally in a theater. Yeah. I saw it in IMAX. My girlfriend got it for me for my birthday. She bought the tickets for me for my birthday. We went and sat and watched it in IMAX. 
incredible music, incredible visuals, completely confusing, convoluted story. But for now, acting, until a second watch or third. Yeah, watch until, yeah, third watch. <laughs> but like the acting was great. It was great to see John David Washington. I mean, it's kind of mm-hmm. I'm old enough to have seen both Denzel Washington's debut and now John David Washington's debut on film as a lead. And so it's just crazy to think about. But really enjoyed being out in the theater again, being in an AMC, being in an IMAX. It was nice to do that again, at least for once. But yeah, it was, you know, that's the most recent modern film, I think, that I've seen. Gotcha. For me, I last week I still have to write my re- review, but uh, Antebellum, did you see that one? Oh, no, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, well, okay. I won't say too much, but I liked it a lot. I, I've seen some wow. diverse opinions on it. Yeah, but it worked very divided. Yeah. It, it, plays, it plays with you a lot. It knows, okay. that, it knows you've seen movies before. And then plays with the fact that he knows you've seen movies before. Uh, uh, it's got some great performances. It's kind of brutal to watch, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it is a it's a directorial debut by a team of directors, and you won't believe the from the opening on. You're like, what other films have they did? Oh, this and mm. just their opening scene. They do a lot of a twisted Gone with the Wind stuff, so they take that as an imp- inspiration for their look. Interesting. And then play it to the harsh realities of what Gone with the Wind would be. Right. But yeah, I'm not going to say any, like, I want you to be as surprised as I was okay. when you check it out. Um, maybe you'll hate it. Maybe you'll be on that side and I'll be on the other side that liked it, but it's yeah. one of my favorite films of the year so far. Of course, I watched Mandalorian season two, episode one, when this airs over yep. two episodes, but watch the first episode. Guess what? It's still good. Yeah. <laughs> like, Timothy Olyphant's there now. So, woo! Yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome. Um and then I read a I just read a script for someone called uh, it's called Bystanders. It's a little kind of violent horror story. Kind of turns like rape revenge and innocent people caught on the road on its head a little bit, wow. but it's a film that might have a has a potential they're trying to shoot a proof of concept thing and I, they wanted me to take a look at it and nice. I like it. It's 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 good. Cool. Solid. So that's it for me, and that'll do it for today. So, John, Roca, holy shit. Thank you for <laughs> taking the time thank to you. stop in. And where can people keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, you can always follow me on social media at The Roca Says. That's my homage to The Rock, R-O-C-H-A. Uh, and you can also uh, follow my channel. If you want to come see the content that we were talking about earlier, you can go to YouTube.com slash John Roca Says, J-O-H-N. Uh, and see all the th- all the shows we're offering there, and all the extra content like reviews and conversations. We reviewed Mandalorian season two, episode one, as well. Probably t- episode two review will be up by the time you hear this, mm-hmm. so you go and watch that as well. And all the politics, sports, film, TV, it's all there for you to enjoy and have a good time with. So please come and patronize it. Oh, and my podcasts: the Top Ten Show, the Cinephiles, and Geek Buddies. All of them. Cinephiles is a classic. Dive into classic or great films that are at least ten years old and the top 10 is just countdown the top 10 of whatever film topic we want to talk about and the geek buddies just getting together and talking about the news stories of the week a lot of stuff geek buddies with the wonderful mike vogel yes with the wonderful mike vogel and (laughs) shannon mcclung yes yes shannon and okay so i'm on twitter and instagram at brandon4kuhd written work at ysoblue.com i'll be back tomorrow with another installment of 4k blues day but until then always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman.
theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. to shoot, shoot, don't talk. <laughs>